Well, for the past two weeks, we have been attempting to get our arms around the Bible's teaching on forgiveness and repentance. And we said that there are four different aspects of what the Word of God teaches and what we need to understand in order to govern our relationships in a manner which pleases the Lord. What does the Word of God say about forgiveness and repentance? How do we deal with one another's sin? How do I deal with my own sin? What are the parameters of forgiveness? How do we pursue repentance? And the first kind of forgiveness that we discussed, you will remember, is called transactional forgiveness. Transactional forgiveness. And we saw this in Luke chapter 17 and in Matthew 18, just to name a couple of passages. And we call it transactional forgiveness because it requires a transaction between the person who has sinned and the person who has been sinned against. When the person who committed the sin willingly admits that he has indeed sinned against God and against the other person, when he comes and confesses that he has sinned, the brother who has sinned against him accepts that confession as a verbal demonstration of repentance and he grants the request, yes, I forgive you. And so transactional forgiveness is all about a transaction that takes place between the person who has sinned and the one who has been sinned against. And that may be a a brother and sister, it may be a husband and wife, it may be two church members, or it may be between the Christian and God. But in all of those cases, transactional repentance, transactional forgiveness works the same. Now, you remember that the appropriate confession that we talked about is not, I apologize, and it's not, I'm sorry. And one of the questions we ask then is, well, then, is it ever appropriate to say, I'm sorry? And the answer to that that question, of course, is yes, in the right circumstances. Now, I'm going to give you two illustrations. And this, this first one's a little bit humorous. I, I came to work uh, about a week and a half ago and found uh, my associate Brent sitting out on the front porch. And um, I came up and I had a smile on my face and I thought, well, gee, I've never seen Brent sit out on the front porch when I come in to work in the morning. So I drove up and I said, Brent, what's going on? And he came up and he said, it's all your fault. And I said, what's all my fault? He said, you remember yesterday when you left the office? I said, yeah. He said, well, you left right at 5 o'clock. And I said, I always leave at 5 o'clock. He said, yeah, but when you left, you locked the door. And I said, well, I always lock the door when I leave. It's kind of policy. If there's one person left in the building, we always lock the door. He said, yeah, I know that, but the door didn't shut all the way. And I'm thinking, I'm still not following. There must be something subtle here I'm missing. The door didn't shut all the way. And I said, well, okay. And he said, well, then a big storm blew through. You remember the rain we got about a week and a half ago? A big storm blew through, and I'm in my office, and the door opens, shuts, opens, shuts, like in a haunted house, right? And Brent's sitting there, and he gets up. He said, I went out to check the door, and the door was opening and shutting because the wind was blowing it. This wind was whipping up, and I stepped outside to see what was happening in terms of the storm, and the wind came, and bam, slammed the door shut. And now it's locked, and I'm outside. (laughs) So he says, I go down the street thinking I can get down to the gas station and call on the telephone to have my wife come pick me up. And just as I'm walking, the rain comes down. (laughs) 
and I get soaking wet and get down and have to call my wife to come pick me up and it's all your fault. And I'm laughing hysterically the whole time he's telling me this story. And so how do you respond to that? I'll tell you how I respond to it. I, I kind of tried to reduce my grin on my face and I said, brother, I'm sorry. <laughs> Now, why is it appropriate in that kind of occasion? Here's why it's appropriate. It's appropriate because there was no sin involved. You understand the difference? I hadn't sinned in this situation. Now, there are other times. For instance, I had a brother who called me this week, and he's telling me about his wife in the hospital, and it just broke my heart. And when he took a breath, I said, Brother, I am so sorry for you and your family. Is it appropriate to say I'm sorry? Sure it is. What you're saying is, in my heart, I empathize with your sorrow. But don't be confused. When you have committed sin against someone or against God, saying I empathize with your sorrow is no confession. It is not a confession of guilt. It is not an admission that you have have done anything wrong. It is simply inappropriate to use as an expression of a forgiving, repenting heart, a repentant heart. And so that's, that's an important point for us to understand. If the issue does not involve sin, then yes, sometimes it is appropriate. But in a transactional forgiveness, when transactional forgiveness is necessary, I'm sorry, it just doesn't fit. Now, the second kind of forgiveness that we talked about was attitudinal forgiveness. Attitudinal forgiveness. Now, we get this from Mark chapter 11. And here's what Jesus says in Mark 11, 25. And we're going to turn to a couple of these texts, but let me just quote this one for you. Mark 11:25. Jesus says, whenever you stand to pray, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. When you stand to pray, forgive. Now here's an example of attitudinal forgiveness. Because it does not involve a transaction between two people. We don't have both people in the same room talking to each other about the sin. You have one person. And it's likely that this person... He's standing before God, perhaps he's in a worship service, perhaps he is uh, in his prayer closet, who knows where he is. And I don't think the issue is standing either. Now that may be a clue that he's in a worship service, but the issue is when you come to God to pray, listen, God has not given you the right to be bitter, ever. You are not allowed to come to God with a bitter heart toward a brother or sister or anyone else. When you come before God, forgive. Forgive. You say, well, some people just don't deserve to be forgiven. Yep, like me and like you. That's the whole point, is it not? They don't deserve to be forgiven. That's the definition of grace. It is undeserved, and yet it is granted. That's the definition of mercy. And we've talked about this before. You know the difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. 
like being thrown in jail or executed. When God is merciful to us, he doesn't give us what we deserve. And you know what grace is? Grace is when we do get something that we don't deserve. And God does birth, uh, both. First of all, he stays the execution. We deserve death. That's mercy. And then he adopts us into his forever family and makes us a part of his family. We are his child. That's grace. Neither of them are deserved. And that's the pattern of forgiveness that we are given. A person who has been sinned against needs to be careful because God makes no allowance for a brother or sister who has been offended to indulge bitterness. The call upon our lives is to respond to a sinning brother, someone who has sinned against me, like Christ responded to such people, who, 1 Peter 2, 23 says, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to God, him who judges righteously. So we are to respond like Christ. We are to respond like David Brainerd. My wife and I remind us ourselves about this every time this happens to us. And it happens, happens to you, happens to everybody. When you've been unjustly criticized or charged or someone does something that harms you and it was willful and it was sinful, what do you do? Well, one thing you do is you pray, God, help me not miss the benefit of this trial. Help me not miss the benefit of this trial. That's what David Brainerd prayed. He had been falsely accused and criticized, and he said, Lord, I pray, lest through my own stupidity and hardness of heart that I might not miss the benefit of this trial. Now, these are the first two kinds of forgiveness the Bible teaches. Transactional forgiveness, which involves two people, and attitudinal forgiveness, which always, 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 regardless of the situation, involves that person with his heart before God. And so we have transactional forgiveness and attitudinal forgiveness, but there are two others. We might call them personal forgiveness and institutional forgiveness. And really, when we get into this, we're not talking about forgiveness, really, anymore. We might better say we're talking about a personal remedy for sin as opposed to an institutional remedy for sin. In other words, God has ordained that there is a way for you personally to handle issues of sin when they come into your life from another person or when you have sinned against someone else. And he has also laid down certain principles of governance for institutions to handle issues of sin. And so we have both. The question that we need to ask here is this. Is there ever a time when the remedy for sin includes deliberate and painful consequences? We've talked about turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, forgive your enemy, love your enemy, do good to him who despitefully uses you because that's what they did to the prophets. You're in good company. Act like Jesus. Forgive. 
Is there ever a time when it's appropriate for the person who has sinned to experience harsh and painful disciplinary punishment? You see, the Bible insists that we fulfill our personal responsibilities both in transactional forgiveness and attitudinal forgiveness toward one another. But that's the limit of our personal responsibility. Is there ever a time, does the Bible ever call for punishment and retribution against sinners? Even Christian sinners? Or we might ask it this way, does God ever intend for justice, that is his right to punish wrong, does he ever intend for that to be shared by man in this age? And I submit to you that the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Yes. The Bible insists that we fulfill our personal responsibilities to pursue both transactional forgiveness and attitudinal forgiveness toward the offender. But that's the limit of our responsibility in in the matter. We are not free to become little vigilantes who go out to insist on justice and to exact justice to get our pound of flesh from the offender. We're not allowed. We are not free to act like that. We do not have the personal authority to punish or to inflict some kind of retributive judgment or revenge upon one who harmed us. Rather, God has ordained that certain institutions in the world fill that role in dealing with sin. And the rules of engagement for dealing with sin is different on the institutional level than it is on the personal level. Now, this is the beauty of the Word of God. This is one of the reasons why we say the Word of God is sufficient for every need. Because while it limits you in your ability or your authority to deal with sin when someone sins against you, you're to forgive. You are to always be in a posture ready to forgive. And yet God has also established certain institutions so that if that person remains unrepentant, that sin can be addressed by the authority that's been put over him. And it all comes, it's all grounded, it's all founded in the Word of God. And so it's important for us to know our place. It's important for us to be able to view a circumstance where we've been sinned against or someone we love has been sinned against and know, how does the Word of God require that I address that situation? I know I have personal responsibility. If nothing less, I must be forgiving from the heart. But what, in what respect do I have transactional responsibilities? And on what occasions is it necessary for me to bring in an authoritative institution in on the matter? These are crucial questions. And there's perhaps no better text of Scripture to demonstrate the reality of all of this than Romans 12. Romans 12, verse 17. And I want you to turn there with me because this is an extensive passage of Scripture. And in one text, it addresses both sides. Chapter 12, verse 17, and we'll read through chapter 13, verse 4. So follow along with me. 
And we could actually go back and, and read previous to this for context, but we don't have the time to do so this morning. You can read that today. Romans 12, 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, brethren, but leave room for the wrath of God. Now, everything that I've just read to you is about personal forgiveness, personal reconciliation, personal repentance even. Leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on your head. Who's he quoting? Jesus. Verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do you fight back against evil? You do good in response. You continually keep, uh, by, the, by the authority of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit, you keep producing the fruit of the Spirit in your life, even toward the offender. But we read on. Chapter 17, uh, 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinances of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves, for rulers are not a cause for fear, for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is, that is, the authority is a minister of God to you for good. For if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword in vain. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. There it is. On the one hand, we have personal remedy for sin. On the other hand, we have institutional remedy for sin. If it ever gets beyond the personal, guaranteed there is going to be some institution that God has set in place to deal with that sin one way or the other. When I speak of personal forgiveness, again, I'm speaking of our personal responsibility to address sin and to grant forgiveness with a brother or sister who is not under our authority and they're not in authority over us in this regard. Within the confines of personal forgiveness, there is no place for retribution or even punishment. The two people who are in conflict are on equal ground and have no God-ordained right to exact punishment upon the sinner. But this is not too true on the institutional level. Now, what are we talking about when we speak of God-ordained institutions? Well, as best I can tell, God, in his word, gives us four. Four institutions that he has specifically ordained in the word of God and been given the responsibility of dressing, addressing sin with something stronger and weightier than a forgiving spirit. They are, and here are the four, and then we'll talk about them briefly. The institution of the government, which he is speaking about specifically in our passage in Romans 13, 
And then the institution of the employer or employer-employee relationship. And then the institution of the church, which is really the first of these. And then the institution of the family. Now let's take a brief look at each of the four of these because this is really crucial when we, when we, for us to come to an understanding of how we engage when there's an issue of sin on the table. The institution of the government, number one. The first thing that we discover here as we start looking at passages about government in the Bible is that the Bible teaches that the civil authorities have the right to use force to punish wrongdoers. The civil authorities have the right to use force in punishing wrongdoers. When there is sin in the society, when a law has been broken, the government has been given the authority to use force, if necessary, against that person. And so the apostle says, understand that he, that is the government, or it, does not bear the sword for nothing. Police officers don't carry a gun for nothing, right? There's a threat there. He might use that on me. If I shoot at him, and when I see a police car coming up from the rear and it's got his lights on, I know what it's like to have him come after me. (laughs) And something grips you on the inside and you start thinking, have I done anything wrong? Am I going too fast? Or what are my taillights out? Am I, did I turn too fast or what? And then, you know, what a relief it is to see him fly by. Why? Because we know intuitively that that car represents a massive authority. It's not the man in the car. It's the government, the God-ordained institution that stands behind that man. And so if you were a policeman and you catch someone breaking in the law, what's your responsibility? Is it not to grant forgiveness? It is not to grant forgiveness. If a police officer catches someone beating someone else up or breaking into someone's home and he comes and he captures this man and he takes him over to his car and gets talking to him and he says, oh man, I am so sorry. I didn't know what I was doing. I lost my head there for a second. And uh, I'm I'm back now, and uh, I'm really sorry. And this was a sin against God, and it was a sin against this homeowner. And, And will you forgive me? The appropriate response is, sure, I forgive you. Get in the car. You're going downtown. And it may very well be that the owner of the house will forgive you. But get in the car. We're going downtown. Why? Because there is a responsibility for dealing with sin in the civil community that is different than the way that we deal with it personally. It has to be there. It would be a travesty of justice for a police officer to say, well, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. I know he's shooting at me, but turn the other cheek. I shouldn't shoot back. In fact, I should, I should have him shoot at this cheek too. That's just crazy. And you know, there's confusion on this level, not so much in the police department, but in governing authorities. I think there's a great deal of uh, confusion on this in our government today. 
The favorite verse, even among unbelievers, used to be John 3.16. Everybody knew that verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Everybody knew that verse. Not so anymore. You know what the favorite verse of our unbelieving culture is? Judge not, lest you be judged. And it has made impotent the very government that was ordained not to do that, but to bring justice to bear upon sin. And so we say, well, there's criminal rights, and there are terrorist rights, and we need to be careful that we are quick to turn the other cheek and forgive. I think there is confusion on this in our culture, and because of it, our society becomes more and more and more degenerate. The more confusion there is on this point in a institutional, on the institutional level at the government, the more our society will spiral downward. Now, that is not the only reason, but it is a major player, I think. And so the difference between the two is that in the institutional sphere, the institution stands in a place of authority over the people. I want you to notice in Romans 12... And 13 here, these two passages that we just read, how many times the word authority is used. He talks about it again and again and again. Verse 1 of chapter 13, every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists authority. Verse 3, do you want to have no fear of authority? Verse 4, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword in vain, this authority... It's all about authority and submission. The institution is in authority. Everyone else is in submission. And there are some occasions where that institution has to bring punishment, justice to bear upon the one who sins. And God has ordained it. He is not ordained for us to do that personally. But he has ordained the government to do it on an institutional level. And so... Even though in verse 19 of chapter 12, it says, the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It does not mean that God has not delegated some of his retributive justice to the institution of the government. He clearly has. He clearly has. One of the questions I asked in the first message is, what do you do when the one who sinned against you has also broken the law? They've sinned against you and they've broken the law at the same time. The answer is that sometimes, even if the offender sincerely repents and seeks forgiveness from something, even if the offender sincerely seeks forgiveness and repentance from you, he might still have to face the just penalty that the civil law requires. And that's right. And that's good. And that is necessary. Why? Because God has ordained the institution of the government to address certain categories of sin and evil and do it without mercy for the good of the society as a whole. And so the remedy, or in some cases the deterrent for sin in society, is a just and decisive government. The Lord has established this institution. And by the way, don't bristle when I say 
justice without mercy. Do you understand that the law of God, the Ten Commandments, was given to us like that? There is no mercy in the law of God. There is no grace in the law of God. It's one of my favorite scenes in Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim has gone on this long journey, and he's been climbing this hill, and he finally finds a place where he can rest, and he sits down, and he's been told, be careful, don't take a nap up there, there isn't much time, you've got to get going before the dark. And he leaves, he, he, he takes a nap, he falls asleep, when he wakes up it is getting dark, he's got to hurry on his way. He accidentally left his scroll behind, and the explanation of that is not necessary for the story. But he realizes further on down the road that he left it and he has to go back. He sinned. He left the word of God behind. And so he has to go back to retrieve it. Now it's really getting late. And he sees a man coming and he thinks, here's a man who's going to come and help me. He's going to be my companion. And he comes up to poor Pilgrim and bam, he smashes him in the face. And he knocks him to the ground and he kicks him. And Bunyan explains who this man represents. He represents law. That's what law was intended to do to lawbreakers. Not be merciful. Not be compassionate. You don't find any of that compassion in the law of God. You find things like this. Whoever offends the law at one point offends it all. And is therefore worthy of death. That is the very basis of mercy. And what I'm saying, this is a crucial point. If we play around with the institution and its responsibilities, if we don't bring to bear justice, even without mercy when it's called for, then mercy, when it's appropriate to give, has no meaning. Because justice no longer has any meaning. And by the way, this is true uh, not only in the government, but it's true of the government schools as well and in all of our educational choices. We've got to be careful, folks, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a homeschooler, that when our children make a grade, that's really their grade. What are we teaching them if they fail a test and we say that you pass? We're saying there really isn't anything but, uh, such as truth Truth really doesn't have any regard to your education. And believe me, they get the point. You hear people who are administrators in colleges talk about homeschoolers, right? And most of us are. I'm speaking about my own family here. When they get to college, one of the problems, they said, we love homeschoolers. They function well in the school. They usually excel. But there's some issues here. And one of them is, they don't know anything about a deadline. What's a deadline? I mean, mom's going to let me get it done when I get it done. And always has. What's a grade? Grades are kind of, you know, they're, they're liquid. They're flexible. You know, we can always do things to make the grade a little better. The grade is the grade. Truth is the truth. We need to teach this to our children. Well, that's the first institution the institution of government that the Word of God has established. Second, the Bible also teaches that there's another institution, the institution of the employer or the employer-employee relationship. Or we find it in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Turn with me there. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, and it's the master-slave relationship, which correlates with us, employer-employee. And this is what we read, slaves... Ephesians 6, 5, 
Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh and with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing that each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free and masters. Do the same thing to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no, look, there is no partiality with God. God is the one who established this law. There is supposed to be submission, a just and good submission. And there is supposed to be authority, a just and good righteous authority. God has ordained there there be a relationship of authority and submission in the arena of work. The worker is charged with the responsibility of faithful service, and the employer or master is called upon to deal with his workers in a just and fair way. It is inappropriate for us as employees to speak badly of our masters, our employers. It demonstrates a lack of submission in our own heart. And then we call other people to submit to Jesus? Now, what's an employer to do if a worker is consistently slack in his labor? You know, the Word of God addresses that. What is an employer supposed to do when his employee is consistently slack in his labor? Is he to turn the other cheek? Is he to bless those who rob from his business? Bless and do not curse, Jesus said, when they are not working for the money that they have been paid. No, those scriptures don't apply to that situation. That worker should have his pay docked. That worker perhaps should be fired. You see, beloved, God has established an economic order in the world that cannot survive when people take wages without working for them. There must be pay for wages. There must be work that is contracted for pay so that there is pay and there is work. If one of those breaks down, the whole system begins breaking down. An excellent illustration of this is 2 Thessalonians. Soon after Paul had founded the church in Thessalonica, someone began spreading the idea that the day of the Lord was at hand. And the result was that some believers stopped working and began living a life of idleness. And so Paul wrote and reminded them about the established principle. Basically, he says, remind them of this. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies, Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. You must work if you intend to eat. Now, obviously, there are exceptions to this in terms of disability in a person who is ill, and obviously there are exceptions. That's not what Paul is dealing with here. He's dealing with the norm. The normal, healthy person ought to be working if he is eating. It's not about working to earn a living. It's about working in obedience to the Lord to glorify him and to find the joy that comes from being obedient to the Lord and living in submission to his word. 
When I was teaching down in Haiti a number of years ago, one of the, uh, Pastor Jim, the former pastor here and I, went down there uh, to do a, a pastor and, and minister deacon conference to help the leadership of that persecuted church get their bearings in terms of what their responsibilities are from the Word of God. And at the end of every day, we opened it up for a question and answer session. And boy, the first day we realized what we were in for because these folks were hungry. They were starving for the meat of the word of God. And they had a thousand questions. And one of the questions was, what do you think about this group? And there was a group down there we didn't know about until this question. This group of professing believers, they, they wear kind of a white doily over their heads. They meet together constantly. They, essentially, they live together and they pray and they pray all day long and they don't work. What do you think about that? that I mean, around here, in, in terms of Haiti, that was being put forth as really spiritual. I mean, if you want to be super spiritual, you kind of join this group. They were somewhat cultic, somewhat evangelical, but they were thinking, you know, the Lord's going to return very much like in Thessalonica. You know, th conditions are so bad, surely Jesus is going to come soon, and they weren't working. This is where we took them. We took them to this passage and said, look, you've got to balance this stuff. You can't say, well, what God wants me to do is pray, and I'm going to be super spiritual all the time, and I'm not going to work. Paul says, that's out of balance. If you don't work, you don't eat. There is an institution that you are serving under, namely your employer. And if you are not functioning under him in the proper regard, that is, you are not rendering service for pay, then you shouldn't be paid anymore. And you should go hungry until you start working again. And so what do you do with a sinful employee who's indulging himself in the sin of laziness? How does an employer, especially a Christian employer who acknowledges that there is such a thing as sin, right, and righteousness, what does a Christian employer do? He brings discipline to bear. He comes down on that sinning brother and say, listen, this isn't just stealing from the company. This is a sin against God, and it's a sin against me. We go back to transactional forgiveness first, and then we bring the institutional weight to bear. I'm going to dock your pay. Or, I'm sorry, but you're fired. This is grace to you, and I hope you don't miss the benefit of this trial, but I can't have you working here without... Uh, I can't be paying you for no work. It's not right. And it's not according to the way God has ordained it. This is not just you're taking money from me. This is you are sinning against God. And it wouldn't be right for me to condone that. And so on an institutional level, returning good for evil does not apply at least not in the same way as it does on a personal level. In the institution of employer and employee, the worker should be paid, but the sluggard should not. The remedy or the deterrent for sin in the workplace is the withholding of pay or the threat of being fired. Because that's the way God has ordained it. And so those are the first two institutions. There are two more. The third institution God has established, which is really first of all, is the institution of the church. Now regarding the institution of the church, the Bible teaches that the local church should practice formal church discipline upon its unrepentant members. 
What recourse does a believer have when it comes, when it becomes obvious that a brother has committed a serious sin but remains unrepentant when approached according to the guidelines of transactional forgiveness found in the Bible? And we have this once in a while. A brother or sister will have an errant husband or wife and they're unrepentant and they don't want to, they don't know what to do. They catch themselves being tempted to sin, not pouring out the fruit of the Spirit on this person's life, calling them to repentance, and yet being tempted to sin in response. What are they to do? I'll tell you what they're to do. If there is unrepentant sin, it needs to be addressed in a transactional way. And when there's no repentance immediately, a brother or sister is to be called in. We're going to see this in Matthew 18. In fact, turn there with me right now. Matthew chapter 18. God has laid out this process for what we should do. Matthew 18, verse, starting with verse 15, if a brother sins, go and show him his fault. Matthew 18, 15. Show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. This is personal forgiveness. But if he does not, Listen to you, then take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. Now, what does that mean? Paul is borrowing from the Old Testament. No one was to be accused formally without witnesses. And so he says, Take some people with you, take one or two with you, so that when you address this person again about their sin, there is confirmation by one or two, in this case perhaps three witnesses, who all hear this brother confessing, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm not willing to admit that it's sin. I'm not willing to repent from it. And then what do you do? Well, that is when it moves from personal to institutional in the church. If he refuses to listen to them, verse 17, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You first kick him out of the church and then you, you love him and treat him like an unbeliever, wanting to bring him back. And then after a while, you stop doing that. Always demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, but no more fellowship. You don't eat with them anymore. You don't go bowling together. You don't play golf together as if there's nothing wrong. There must be a holy ostracism. This isn't turn the other cheek anymore. This isn't bless those who persecute you anymore. When the institution comes to bear, it comes with the authority that God has given it to render a just judgment upon the unrepentant sinner. Of course, the primary text for that is Matthew 18. But I want you to remember that the motive here is never revenge. It's never any kind of retribution. Rather, the offended brother or sister understands that if the sinning brother does not repent of his sin, God will inflict upon that sinner all kinds of judgment, all kinds of punishment, all kinds of discipline if it's a true brother in the Lord. But he loves his brother, and he doesn't want to see this happen. And so he brings the matter to the church because it is the institution that God has set an authority over those who claim to belong to Christ. That's not a merciless move on your part. That is mercy. That was one time we had um, Lou Priolo over to speak at our uh, quarterly conference over at Birchman. 
and he was talking about when him and his wife were newly married. Um, they had children, and children needed attention, and his wife was tired, and he was watching basketball. And, uh, and he, she said, honey, would, would you go deal with little Johnny? You know, his diaper needs to be changed. And he said, well, in a little while I'm watching basketball. And she said, no, it really needs to be changed now. And he said, look, watching basketball is not a sin. I haven't committed any sin here. It's okay for me to watch basketball. And uh, she couldn't make any progress with him. He was admitting this publicly, so he wouldn't mind me telling you this. And she finally said to him, I understand your point, but would you mind if I called the elders of the church and asked them if they thought you're sitting here when you needed to be changing a diaper with sin? Yes, dear, I'm coming. (laughs) What did she do? She appealed to the authority that is over both of them. And that authority never had to get involved. Everybody knew intuitively that when the next level gets involved, I better be right. I better not be in sin. In this case, there is a time when personal remedy for sin is given over to the institutional remedy for sin. And I would suggest that the reason that many churches struggle so much with unholiness and ungodliness among its members is because the leadership has abdicated its institutional responsibility to impose church discipline upon unrepentant members, to impose God's decisive remedy for sin in the church. I know many of you who have come from other churches, and I have asked many of you, did the church you come from, did it practice church discipline? I'm just curious. It has nothing to do with your membership. And consistently the answer is, I never saw that happen. I never saw it happen. Never heard it talked about. I'll tell you what. I can tell you some things about that church. If they are not practicing church discipline, and if their members don't even know that the church practices discipline, that church is in danger of being an unholy church because the institution over it is not functioning the way God has called it to function. You know, the Puritans had three things that that made up the definition of a church, three criteria that made the definition of the church. Number one was preaching the word of God, the centrality of preaching the word of God. Number two was the administration of what they called the sacraments or the ordinances, which is the Lord's Supper and baptism. And you know what number three was? Discipline. So that if you had a church where all three of those things were happening, but there wasn't any music, there wasn't any singing, there wasn't any pageantry or anything like that, you had a biblical church. But if you had all the other trappings and you didn't have church discipline, you weren't a church. God did not recognize you as a church because you're not dealing with sin. And that, by the way, is why we practice church discipline here. I praise the Lord that it's very, very, very rare that it ever becomes public. But behind the scenes, it happens frequently. It happens frequently. And so the remedy of sin for sin in the body of Christ is brought to bear in the form of church discipline. But there's a fourth institution that God has established, and that's the institution of the family. The family. I want you to go back with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, we all know chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right, and we all teach our children that. 
But fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Proverbs 23, 13 and 14 says, Do not hold back discipline from your child. Although you strike him with a rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with a rod and rescue his soul from hell. I used to use that verse uh, pretty frequently when I spanked our kids. Son, you shall not surely die. <laughs> this should bring you comfort. It never did. Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 13, 24. He who withholds the rod or he who spares the rod, listen, he who spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And so what is a mother to do? You're a mom. You're out with your three-year-old. You're in the grocery store, and she slaps you in the face. She's mad because she didn't get what she wanted. She slaps mama in the face. Does mama bring to mind, judge not, lest you be judged. Turn the other cheek. I should turn the other cheek. No. That doesn't apply. That would be sick for a mother to do that. What is a mother to do? You pull the grocery cart over, you go out to the car, and you apply the necessary institutional discipline. Why? Because God has established the family as an institution to apply the remedy and deterrent for sin in a way that he has not provided for you to deal with it personally. A mother is an authority over her children. A father is an authority over his family. And when there is sin, it doesn't mean that you must always apply corporal punishment, but there always must be the addressing of sin. And sometimes that means the administration of a measured amount of pain. Daddy, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Yes, I do forgive you, son but I'm also going to have to spank you because that's what God requires of me. To grant you forgiveness transactionally, yes. To grant you forgiveness attitudinally from the heart, yes. But to apply the necessary deterrent to help your flesh remember not to do this again for your own joy and for the glory of God. That's the way God has ordained it. The mother-child relationship is an institutional relationship. The father and mother are an authority over the child. And, the, and God has ordained that that institution be functioning in the order of the home the way it is laid out in the word of God. And when a child disobeys or acts disrespectfully or sins in some way against his siblings, it is the responsibility of the parent to bring appropriately measured discipline to bear on that child for his own good. And so, in summary, the Bible teaches that the civil authority has the right to use force to punish wrongdoers. It is not a matter of turn the other cheek or judge not lest you be judged. Those verses apply in an entirely different venue and must be obeyed in that venue, but not on an institutional with the government. Secondly, it teaches that the employer has the right to withhold wages from a sluggard and even to fire him. Third, the Bible teaches that the church should publicly discipline its members who are living in intentional and unrepentant sin for their own good, 
By the way, we have an example of this in 1 Corinthians where there was a man who was found sleeping with his, mo- his mother, his stepmother, and Paul says, you people disgust me. You glory in that. If I were there and I am there in spirit, I'd discipline him. Kick the man out of the church. And they did. And they treated him pretty harshly. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul comes back and says, listen, he's repented already. Give the guy a break. You're being too harsh. Restore him to fellowship. And we've seen that around here, haven't we? We've seen both. We've seen discipline. We've seen restoration. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And fourthly, the Bible teaches that parents are to discipline their children pointing them to Christ as the only true remedy for the sinful heart. And by the way, you know why there's problems in society with institutional crime? It's because of number four, first of all, because parents aren't exercising their institutional responsibilities at home. And when they're not instituted at home, guess where they show up first? In the church, if they're believers or a believing family. And guess where it shows up next if it's not dealing, dealt with? It shows up in the employer-employee relationship. And then finally, it shows up in some breach of the civil law. And before we know it, this person who is in perhaps a Christian home is now in jail. I've seen it happen. And so what's that say? It says, Dad, all of this hinges on your obedience to the Word of God in addressing sin and applying the appropriate remedy at the appropriate time in your home. This is how God has established that sin would be addressed. And the whole point is that sin should always be addressed. It should never be left unchecked. It is the malignant spiritual disease that will result in the eternal condemnation of millions of lost souls. Dare we not address it? We simply dare not take the matter lightly. And so here is the conclusion. In all of our personal relationships, God calls us to be abundantly merciful to one another. Loving one another from the heart. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Galatians 5, where Paul appealed to the highest, greatest command, and it wasn't love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, although he would say that that's true. But his point was, love your neighbor as yourself is the most important thing you need to learn. Love your neighbor Forgive, address sin, do it in a, in a way that's gracious and even tentative, but by all means address it. And so on the one hand, be merciful to one another. On the other hand, that mercy often means we, on the one hand, simply overlook the fault, but on other occasions when sin has occurred that breaks fellowship, transactional forgiveness is pursued while attitudinal forgiveness is dominating the heart. In some cases, however, the sin moves into the realm that must be addressed not by the individual, but the, but the institution under whose authority the sin was committed. In some cases, the goal should always be restoration, but justice often needs to be applied without mercy for the purpose of restraining the evil and applying the remedy for sin. You see, God has provided a remedy. 
we're not going to be able to get the world to stop sinning. But God has applied a remedy. He has supplied it through his word, both personally in our personal relationships and institutionally at every level of society. The only question is, are we going to submit to him and know the joy of doing so or not? The biblical view of forgiveness distinguishes between personal and institutional involvement for the remedy of sin. Now, I bless this congregation. I praise the Lord for you. And I've said this before. I've never been a part of a church where I've seen so many parents diligent to train their children to respond biblically to the authorities that are over them. And I can tell you parents, you've probably heard it individually from people. But you know, we have visitors at Calvary a lot. And when I take folks out to lunch or meet with them, whenever it's convenient for them, we go out. And one of the things that I hear consistently was, you know, when we came into Calvary, we were greeted warmly. And then we got looking around and we saw all these young children. And you know, the sermon's pretty long. And they all sat still and were respectful and obedient to mom and dad. How does that happen? This is how it happens. When mom and dad are truly devoted to obeying the word of God, the first thing that happens is sin is addressed and joy is achieved. Amen? Father, we praise you that your word...